This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Kate Madden on faculty in critical care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. I'm honored to welcome our guest speaker today, Dr. Ann Thompson. Dr. Thompson is a professor of critical care medicine and pediatrics at the University of Pittsburgh. In addition to her countless publications, she is the past chair of the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Investigators Research Network and current vice dean of the University of Pittsburgh Medical School. With her many accomplishments, she is ideally suited to reflect with us today on changes in critical care during her career. Dr. Thompson, welcome. Thank you. What I'd like to talk with you about today is uh, critical care, a bit of its history, and some of my personal hopes for its future. As I prepared to give this talk, um, I was reminded of a famous neonatologist's grand rounds. He was the founder of the specialty, an international leader, and if I remember right, he entitled his lecture, Things I Thought I Know I Thought, Things I Thought I Knew. And then he pr proceeded to recount elements of old dogma, some of which he'd helped establish that he had had to abandon. Um, so, don't believe everything you think. Um, many things that we think right now are good treatment will change, and I think that's true for all of us. A quick review of uh, PICU history. Although the first units probably began in the 1930s to 50s with the polio units and a multidisciplinary, um, multidisciplinary PICU in Gothenburg, Sweden, um, the first ICUs in the United States began when uh, Peter Saffer opened the first adult um, ICU PICU at Baltimore City Hospital, and uh, when Jack Downs uh, established the first uh, pediatric ICU at CHOP in 1967. My experience um, in critical care begins about seven years after that. Um, in 1969, uh, Peter Saffer and uh, Peter Kamschulte established the pediatric ICU at my hospital in uh, Pittsburgh, and then subsequently several other um, major hospitals uh, set up their own ICUs. I entered uh, the picture, as I said, around 1974, um, and then um, in 1980, uh, Bob Crone, uh, began to set up the PICU um, here at Boston Children's. Um, he invited me to join, um, but unfortunately, my um, husband couldn't find a good role in Pittsburgh, so um, I had to continue looking. In addition, not only has the history um, proceeded, but the structure of ICUs has changed dramatically. I think we all missed the polio units of the 1950s, uh, but subsequent units uh, made progress. Uh, we started to have uh, more space between the beds. 
Um, and now we've moved to space for individual patients in individual rooms with room for their families um, to spend time and even sleep um, in the room with their very sick child. The other thing that's changed dramatically is who's in the ICU. I happen to have um, a stack of census papers from when I arrived in Pittsburgh, and this is from one day in 1981. And as you can see, not only are the ICUs much bigger today, but the patients who are in them are quite different. Some of the diseases have frankly disappeared, and our treatment of many of the others has changed dramatically. We've moved all of the pediatric heart patients to uh, cardiac specialty ICUs, and our treatment of patients with uh, brain injury, brain infection, has been concentrated with, in special teams that take care of these patients. Some of you will not even have seen some of these diseases. I'm not certain that um, very many people have seen epiglottitis, but it was a common part of ICU treatment uh, when I began in intensive care. Very few weeks went by without a child uh, with epiglottitis. In addition, our equipment changed dramatically too. Uh, our first ventilators had minimal capacity. Over time, um, the uh, ventilators got a little more sophisticated. Uh, the Emerson ventilator, um, developed in 1964, allegedly in Mr. Emerson's garage, and made out of things like pressure cookers and copper pipe tubing um, and a um, variety of other uh, bolts um, and things one could find in a garage, um, was a real workhorse uh, for a couple of decades. It was volume controlled, machine-triggered inspiration, did have an adjustable I-to-E ratio, and could monitor pressure and volume delivered to the patient. It didn't originally even have the capacity to generate end-expiratory pressure until after 1967, when Ashbaugh's landmark paper about ARDS uh, became available. And at that time, uh, the PEEP supply was external to the main portion of the ventilator. Not only did the equipment change, but our management changed very dramatically. After Ashbaugh introduced the importance of ventilation for ARDS and added CPAP or PEEP to management, um, Gregory followed with a very dramatic change in infant RDS management um, by adding CPAP and demonstrating 70 to 80 percent survival in babies who are almost certainly going to die. That was picked up by intensivists all over the world and between the early 1970s and the 1980s, it's very easy to find references to PEEP uh, that ranged from as low as six to as high as 45 centimeters of water. The goal in those days was to keep the PO2 over 60 with an FiO2 of less than 0.5. PEEP was chosen based on O2 delivery, uh, usually by Swan-Gantz catheter. Um, and the usual practice was to keep the CO2 normal, use whatever rate was needed and tidal volumes of 10 to 15 milliliters per kilo. 
As a consequence of these ideas about keeping the PO2 and the CO2 normal and uh, using whatever level of PEEP and tidal volume were needed, a rather common uh, ventilator setting one might encounter was something like this. PIP as high as 50, PEEP as high as 30, rate of 20. Perhaps not surprisingly, fellows had extensive experience with chest tubes. Um, and I'm not referring to the widely available Furman uh, pigtail catheters. These were uh, chest tubes uh, placed with trocars. However, in the mid-80s, a trend toward kinder, gentler ventilation took hold. Uh, the first paper um, looked at permissive hypercapnia, um, Darioli noted that allowing the CO2 was associated with good outcome in adults. And Jen Wong, um, a neonatologist, noted um, excellent outcome in infants with uh, PPHN, um, a group where uh, hyperventilation had been a common treatment. Um, he, his part of this story tends not to be told nearly as often in adult and pediatric critical care, but I think it was a critical piece of our changing uh, practice. Um, during this time, we began to wonder if carbon dioxide was actually beneficial to the injured lung, and certainly not seeking to make it normal or lower um, was becoming a common practice. Um, across town here, um, Dr. Shannon and um, Tadres um, demonstrated good outcome in kids, um, allowing CO2 to rise, and then a really practice-changing paper was that of um, Hickling at the same time. In addition to um, the idea that hypercapnia was not harmful, the idea that ARDS is a small lung led to trying lower tidal volumes. The first paper uh, to address this was that of Amato in 98. And the people had some concerns about the practice there, but most of those concerns were um, alleviated with the ARDSNET trial in 1999, where it became pretty clear that high tidal volumes contribute to lung injury in acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. Another area where things have changed tremendously um, in the last few decades um, is that of our signature um, illness of septic shock. When I was um, entering medicine, um, norepinephrine was commonly associated with the phrase, leave a fed, leave them dead. I've summarized some of the major dates in um, our development of treatment of septic shock. I just want to draw your attention to 2013, when the death of uh, an adolescent boy in New York um, from sepsis led to the New York legislature passing regulations requiring that uh, physicians in New York treat sepsis in a certain way. Needless to say, physicians weren't very happy about being told by the legislature how to take care of patients. But what has been demonstrated since is that outcome dramatically improved in New York. The question was, was that just because uh, sepsis outcome was improving everywhere, 
um, and it happened also to be occurring in New York. Question was probably been answered in a paper that was just published a couple weeks ago um, when Kahn and associates demonstrated that the decrease in mortality was greater in New York than in states without sepsis regulations. So the question for us all is, how hard are we going to work to identify best treatments um, that we adopt with um, our own intellect and experience guiding us, or are we going to wait for legislators who might not always be as successful in uh, getting it right as it appears the New York legislation did? This is so interesting, Dr. Thompson. Um, and with your delineation of these multiple seminal uh, publications throughout this time that influenced um, your practice um, has me thinking about um, the timing between these publications and new scientific findings and when you saw the practice really change in um, critical care in your own institution and in other places um, and what the role is of external regulators um, and other bodies in uh, sort of uh, influencing those changes. Those are really important questions. Um, I have seen very rapid adoption and astonishingly delayed um, adoption. Um, an example of very rapid adoption was the use of CPAP in infant RDS. Gregory published his paper, what did I say, 71? And by 74, in my hospital that didn't even have a neonatologist, we were using it. And I think it spread rapidly across the country. On the other hand, if you look at the literature, I think it's the average is 17 years from a major publication to widespread adoption. And even places that think they have been doing something, when they look carefully at their actual practice, tend to find out that, hmm, not so perfectly. I think that's one of the ways we as a specialty group really need to look at what we do. Sometimes we think we know what we're doing and we aren't. The other thing about external, um, clearly we tend to rail against external control. And I think I'm part of that. Along with these changes in management has been an amazing progression of our role in caring for patients. When I first started, um, as my colleagues would refer to as the dark ages, um, we were viewed as dangerous to children. Um, at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, there was an intensivist attending in the ICU, and there was a general pediatrician attending in the ICU. And the goal of that pediatrician was to protect the children from the harm the intensivists might do. Um, we have, I think, emerged quite in a quite different uh, place today. At this point, in many ways, we have become the go-to doctors for the entire hospital. Our fellows are seen by their peers on other specialties and other areas of the hospital as the people to go to when a child's in trouble. Um, if there is confidence that if anybody can um, rescue a child, we are the ones who can do it. 
However, during that period when things were rather uncertain and we were not um, entirely welcome, one of my uh, mentors, Jack Downs, who's founded the unit at CHOP, um, had this mantra, which was, hang on till your fingertips turn white and everyone else drops off. And I will say that mostly they have. Um, people have accepted our expertise. And I think the demand for increased productivity across the board for every specialist and subspecialist, and the fact that nobody can work their residence um, 120 hours a week anymore has led to uh, recognition that teamwork is the only way to get things done. And I think overall that has led to a markedly decreased struggle uh, regarding patient management. Let me go back now to a couple of adventures that um, were a major part of my experience early in my career. Um, Thomas Starzl, um, the founder of uh, Modern Liver Transplantation, um, had begun his efforts in Denver, uh, but with very limited success. He transferred the program to Pittsburgh in 1981, and he got there about six months before I did. He said he would do six to 12 transplants a year, uh, but in the first year he did 25. Um, and over the next 20 years, he averaged 48 uh, transplants a year. So there was never a day without um, one or two uh, transplants in our ICU. Initially, it was a grueling, dangerous operation but tremendous changes in the pre-op management, um, the intra-op um, technique, and post-operative care um, led to really dramatic improved outcomes. And with those improved outcomes, transplantation was made available to a broader population. It was done before children uh, became as desperately ill and new techniques emerged with the addition of split graft transplants and living-related liver transplantation. Um, and of course, uh, immunosuppression has changed quite dramatically. Uh, and in about a quarter of the patients, um, it can be discontinued altogether. Early on, blood loss was extraordinary. Um, and it contributed substantially to mortality. In the first 20 years, about 30% of the patients died. In the last 10 years, less than 5% have died. Another important um, journey we've been on as intensivists has been that of ECMO or ECLS. The development of the membrane oxygenator allowed prolonged bypass, and we began to use it for other patients with um, severe lung disease. Early infant trials um, with premature infants were not successful um, because of a high incidence of uh, central nervous system bleeds. And at about the same time, uh, there was a multi-institutional ECMO study um, that looked very uh, discouraging. Uh, both the patients with mechanical ventilation alone or those with conventional ventilation plus ECMO had a very poor outcome. Uh, the top shaded boxes in both of these were the only survivors in the patients with pneumonia. And if that had been the end of the story, um, ECMO might have vanished from critical care. But during the same period, 
we started to see success with term infants. Um, and here, the survivors are in green, and you can see that we started to see um, remarkably good outcomes using um, ECMO. Subsequently, a really interesting and carefully designed study um, led by Pearl O'Rourke here in Boston was done because there was felt to be equipoise between the intensivists and the neonatologists, with the neonatologists not being fans of ECMO and the intensivists being enthusiastic. And the agreement was that there would be uh, two phases to this study. Patients were randomized to either ECMO or conventional ventilation. Those with conventional ventilation would be treated in the neonatal unit where the neonatologists were comfortable not offering um, ECMO because they didn't believe in it. And those who were randomized to ECMO would be treated in the pediatric ICU. When four deaths occurred in one group, the trial would be switched to phase two and all subsequent patients would be placed in the winning group until a similar number of deaths occurred in that group. The problem was that while this was going on, residents and nurses in the neonatal ICU became convinced that ECMO was better and threatened to tell families that their children, their child was missing a life-saving treatment. This trial was stopped early and although it showed a statistical benefit for ECMO, the st statistics were marginal, and Dr. O'Rourke and the others involved really wished that they had been able to continue the trial. But the trial stirred up a lot of public um, upset, and um, it reached the newspapers. And I think as a consequence of that tumult, we'll never have another neonatal trial in this country. There was another trial in Britain, which demonstrated improved survival, less neurologic morbidity, and, but left questions about conventional treatment. The big question was that since the uh, conventionally treated patients were left in their hospitals of origin and the ECMO patients were transferred to the ECMO center, it became a question, is this an ECMO trial or a center trial? And then along came permissive hypercapnia, nitric oxide, high-frequency ventilation, and more, and the whole environment for doing such a study changed. And that's really where we are today. Now, we tried to do a randomized ECMO trial, but unfortunately for the trial, um, we found that many of the patients who were designated ECMO eligible ended up being treated exclusively with mechanical ventilation and using the new treatment approaches, 85% were um, survivors. That meant the hypothesis was untestable and the trial stopped early. And we have really decided that in pediatrics, it's very unlikely that we will ever be able to do um, a future RCT. The adults jumped on the bandwagon as, as well. Certainly it has become commonplace in uh, the care of uh, post-op uh, cardiac patients in pediatrics. 
That has actually decreased some with the availability of improved vasoactive drugs. And in addition, the availability of ventricular assist devices makes uh, ECMO inappropriate for a certain group of patients. We've learned that it can be valuable in acute myocarditis. My former colleague, Brad Furman, used to say that the heart can never rest, it can only arrest. And ECMO does provide an opportunity for the heart to rest. Um, we have learned that uh, children with um, myocarditis can be placed on ECMO and a, a fair number of them um, will survive. Pittsburgh being a city of bridges led us to look to see whether we could use ECMO as a bridge to transplant for patients with myocarditis. And we found that of a small series, six of seven uh, did survive to transplant. And most interestingly, one recovered on ECMO and didn't require a transplant at all. And a much larger study in Toronto demonstrated that um, many patients um, can survive um, and recover without transplant, but it does serve effectively as a bridge to transplant. We've also learned a great deal about the use of ECMO um, in cardiopulmonary arrest. And we don't have time to go through all of this today. But in 2005, the American Heart Association recommended that um, it was reasonable to consider CPR, extracorporeal CPR, for in-hospital cardiac arrest that was refractory to initial uh, resuscitation if the hospital was prepared to uh, provide rapid ECMO, if good quality CPR had been performed, and if the condition leading to the arrest was reversible or amenable to heart transplantation. Those recommendations have been revised for in-hospital cardiac arrest, but there's no data at present to support a recommendation to use it for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. What has become very clear is that the quality of CPR matters. Speaking of safety and quality, early in my experience, we mostly didn't. We adhered to uh, the old see one, do one, teach one, and sometimes the teaching was done quite badly. I'm quite confident that in my time, I have seen patient injuries um, that resulted from this approach to procedures and patient care. And one of the most dramatic things was that for a very long time, there were no grown-ups, experts in the ICU. When I began, not in Philadelphia, but um, where I was a pediatric resident earlier, um, there were no attendings in the ICU at all. It was the residents doing the best they could, often quite well, but often badly. We only grudgingly became aware of hospital dangers. And we began slowly to recognize that they are not an intrinsic part of illness, but can reflect the impact of system structures and preventable human error. I think the public became aware of this before we comfortably admitted it. Between 1995 and 2000, there was acceleration of longstanding efforts to make healthcare aware 
of the potential of preventing problems. We were pretty slow in recognizing the importance of attending to our own safety issues. And I would say that the real focus of that didn't occur until about the turn of the century. But then we realized we really can make a difference when we do things carefully and attend to bundles of care. We've dropped the prevalence, the incidence of catheter-associated infections, ventilator-associated pneumonia, and outcome um, from sepsis has improved by attending to these uh, bundles of care. There's still a lot left to be done. We are making the transition from an attitude that stuff happens to recognition that we really can and must provide safe, reliable care. Um, we're still kind of reluctant to give up our own individual style for accomplishing even basic tasks. And in the absence of data, we're still often unwilling to standardize really simple elements of care so that we can generate some data. I really think it's time for that to change. And frankly, I had hoped we'd be further along on that path. There have been all sorts of other dramatic changes I don't have time to talk about today. Uh, but the management of congenital heart disease has been transformed, and we're making tremendous progress in neurologic injury. And I feel that the need to make change in neurologic injury is huge. None of us is satisfied when we have the heart or lungs or kidneys back to good functioning, um, but a brain that is profoundly injured. When I think about the management of neurologic injury, it takes me back to remembering um, progress about imaging. When I started, the only way we could image the brain was by way of pneumoencephalography. You took some spinal fluid out, you put some air in, you tipped the baby upside down and back right up and got the air to rise into the head, and you looked at the air fluid contrasts, and you made... Um, some good guesses about what those abnormal shapes might be. We also had angiography, but again, it was relatively primitive and you had to rely on hints of what was there, what was normal, what was not. Now, of course, from the first CTs to functional MRI and PET scans, we've made a whole lot of progress. We still need something that tells us more about whether this brain can ever work again. So where are we now? We have much greater recognition that our mechanical supports are just that. They're not cures. They're often not even sufficient for buying time. The physiology is still tremendously important, but our next leaps forward will require understanding of basic cellular processes and developing interventions that address those processes and reverse them where necessary. We have this incredibly rapidly advancing science and big data that will allow big steps forward in general and most likely allow us to direct them with precision. Dr. Thompson, this has uh, been just a wonderful review of all of these incredible advances that have been made in critical care and in pediatric critical care um, over your career. Um, taking all of these um, amazing advancements into account and this um, change in our view of the medical system, where do you think we should be going in the future and what should be our priorities? 
Well, we still need to examine the basics of what we do. Which fluid is the right one? What's the best way to replace K? How many times do we have to check the electrolytes? What forms of sedation um, will allow our patients to be calm without injuring them? What happens to our patients beyond the ICU in the long term? How do we take care of the families? How do we take care of ourselves? Before closing, let me just touch on those last three questions. We've made a lot of progress at going beyond survival rate to quality of survival. We've moved from the first physiologic stability index in 1984 to the functional status um, score about 10 years ago, and we keep modifying PRISM. But none of these is patient-specific. None of them measures quality of life. We really need to know more about our individual patient outcomes. There are some ongoing studies, um, and they will be very valuable. But I think we need follow-up clinics. There are a few PICUs that have established them. I don't have much optimism that in the average intensivist is going to choose to run a follow-up clinic. But I think there are colleagues who would be interested. And if we could develop a collaboration um, between uh, them and ourselves, we could learn a lot more about specific patient outcomes and then apply it um, to our efforts to improve our care. We've known for quite some time that families need and value good communication. Um, we know that it improves their psychological well-being, and that in turn improves their children's well-being. It increases satisfaction with the care we deliver. It helps us use critical care resources much more um, efficiently by establishing appropriate goals of care and avoiding prolonged use of non-beneficial treatments, we benefit both patients and our healthcare system. And interestingly, a study some time ago showed that 90% of the cases we called ethical dilemmas were really problems of inadequate communication. And when communication is improved, many of the ethical issues vanish. I saw a paper not too long ago that was entitled From Communication Skills to Skillful Communication, and I think it's, it's a perfect title about what we need. We have made a pretty good effort toward recognizing the importance of our communication. We know that you need to establish rapport quickly. Decisions often have to be made in a compressed period. Families experience strong emotions that often interfere with thinking clearly. And given all of that, it's not surprising that interpersonal conflicts are common and ethical dilemmas arise. We also know that when we have these problems, it has an impact on the healthcare team itself. It causes emotional and moral distress among the caretakers. And I think it interferes with our interaction with our colleagues within and outside of critical care. Increasingly, 
Programs are developing workshops to enhance communication skills. In Pittsburgh, we have something called PC3, Pediatric Critical Care Communication. I know here in Boston, there's similar um, program, and I know that they exist in uh, many other places. But I recently read about a long-term program um, in a program in Calgary uh, that's a longitudinal program that goes over one or two years. It combines didactic materials, feedback from faculty and families who were part of conversations that fellows participated in, and then they develop simulation that is based on real interactions that fellows had. Um, their experience is that the fellows welcome seeing others uh, work with these difficult situations um, that they remember well and have found that that is a very helpful way of modifying their approaches in the future. In general, as we've worked on improving communication skills, our focus has been on giving bad news, having end-of-life discussions, requesting organ donation. But I really want to ask people to think about the importance of establishing a relationship separately from these big issues. Who's this child? What's she like? when she's feeling well. Tell me about your family. How will you know when he or she's feeling better? What gives him pleasure? How are you doing? Who's helping you? What are you worrying about? Is your whole family on the same page or are you seeing things differently? I think when we establish these important sense of who the people in the family are, what they mean to each other. We learn a lot about what's important to them, how they make decisions, what previous experiences influence their thinking. We establish ourselves as interested in them beyond the diagnosis of the moment. And then when major decisions need to be made, we already know how to tailor our approach so that our recommendations make sense to them. I think good communication is a survival skill. Faculty colleagues uh, didn't come in to talk to me about a difficult A-line. They wanted help with a difficult family or a difficult colleague. We also know that poor communication is an important factor in litigation. Entirely separately from that, good communication is enormously rewarding, and I believe that effective communication is a protection against burnout. We know that burnout is very common in uh, physicians and other healthcare uh, workers across the country. It turns out that increasingly it's being identified in healthcare um, around the world. It causes personal morbidity, family stress and distress, substance abuse, even suicide. It interferes with good professional behavior. People speak to each other badly, communicate poorly, and make more mistakes, and their patients are less satisfied. And overall, it's very costly to employers and society. It's not new. Um, the term emerged in the 1970s. A group of us put together the first report 
about our own subspecialty in 1995. At that point, we found that 14% of our colleagues were burned out and another 38% were at risk. And generally what that meant is they didn't think their work was valued by others, and they were less likely to feel very successful or that their peers viewed them as successful, less likely to feel satisfied with their professional life, and less likely to be routinely exercising or having some other outside um, interest. These are some statistics from um, uh, Medscape this past year. The two red bars are critical care on the top and pediatrics on the bottom. I don't know which one we belong in, but since they're both in the uh, mid to high 40s, I don't think it matters too much. The incidence is really high. What we have found is that we're not especially good at dealing with it, but Colville and colleagues um, have been identifying um, some useful uh, techniques. Um, they looked at seven British ICUs, adult and pediatric, and they found that factors that reduce burnout are people's baseline resilience and then attending debriefing after difficult events. Factors that reduce stress, once again, baseline resilience, talking with superiors, and maintaining um, important hobbies. Unfortunately, those are not the most common coping strategies. What people wish for was more debriefing, more opportunities for reflective practice, and more training in mindfulness or relaxation. They also wish for more social activities. That's probably the easiest part of what needs to be done. An interesting study just this past year of uh, 31 pediatric training programs, looking at pediatric residents over two years, identified a disturbingly high rate of burnout. This is in residents, 58%. But interestingly, those with baseline higher mindfulness scores had lower stress scores. Those with higher scores for self-compassion experience less stress and burnout, and those with the combination of higher uh, mindfulness and self-compassion two years later showed an increased confidence that they could provide compassionate care. And what the Kemper and colleagues um, took from that was the importance of finding ways to incorporate mindfulness and resilience training into fellowship training. Related to this, but not identical, it's that uh, intensivists are almost always team leaders without leadership training. If we had leadership training, I think it would help us interact with colleagues in other specialties and other professionals. It would lead to improved team function and it, probably an improved sense of self-worth. I think another issue worth touching on are options for the aging intensivist. I know about that. We need to think about how long should people take night call? Should they take as much as their much younger colleagues? Are there new roles uh, for them? Is there new work to do? Should we be helping people early in their careers 
develop portions of their professional identity that might lead them into an area that is uh, less taxing for 20, 30, 40 years later. And then finally, although I really do think we can do a number of things to decrease burnout, there are many of these elements of change that will require whole systems to change. And leadership training, I think, will help us work with hospital administrators, even government agencies, to find ways to make the bureaucratic burden less and perhaps to restructure the electronic health record into a more ICU-friendly uh, uh, version. So what's still out there? Far from finished. We will have to uh, continue to pursue better care through research and quality and safety initiatives. We need to make sure that we continue to move toward becoming a well-oiled machine. Once upon a time, we were sort of the galloping heroes. Here I come to save the day. Um, but we're not so much that anymore. It's important for us to think of ourselves more like world-class orchestra conductors, making sure that our whole team works beautifully together. And we need to work with information systems that work. We need to watch what do we know about outcome beyond survival? What is life like after a long ICU stay? And how can we improve our ability to communicate with our colleagues, our patients, and the world as a whole? I have loved the mix of fast-paced, complex, and highly technological care combined with the opportunity to support patients and families through what was necessarily one of the most difficult and frightening periods in their lives. I realize that to this day, I feel the same. The science has become more and more interesting, the opportunity to intervene successfully much greater, and the chance to share patients and families' hopes, fears, joy, or sorrow such a privilege. I can't imagine better work. I wish you all the same. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.